Ah, the middle of the week and plenty to hear from the day on RTE Radio 1. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. The early hours of the morning it said everyone to take cover, get into the bunker quickly. The two mortals landed at four minutes past five. He got them in, into safety. He saved the lives of 14 guys that morning. Scott was still a baby when I got my diagnosis. You know, he wasn't even one. Um, so it's still really hard to, to, to look at them knowing that, you know, I'm... I'm going to die, like, and Joe uh, Devley is the one drug that's keeping me, sorry. No, listen, I, I'm i amazed that you're able to talk about this because to have yeah. to do it in a public way is, um, it's devastating, really. I want my T-shirt, what I've always got, I should have, what I signed up for is what I want, you yeah. what I paid for is what I want. And we'll start in the afternoon. 40 years in the music business. No 80s soundtrack is complete without a bit of soft sell. Mark Almond was talking to Ray Darcy. Now, it's 42 years since Soft Cell's Tainted Love was a global hit. And it's hard to believe, but in those 42 years, Soft Cell have never performed in Dublin. Well, that's all going to change this weekend in St Anne's Park. When Soft Cell, along with Orchestral Manoeuvres in the Dark, Heaven 17, Sophie Ellis-Bexter and others take to the stage. And on the line, we have Soft Cell frontman Mark Almond. How are you doing, Mark? I'm fine, thank you, Ray. How are you? Good, good. Great to talk to you. So what what happened? I I know yourself and Dave split and you've been here as a solo artist, but the fact that you've never actually performed as a band here is very odd. We never really played a lot, even back in, in um, in the days, in the early days. We never did a lot of tours or never did a lot of concerts. And we've kind of parted ways on a couple of occasions. Um, you know, that when we came back in um, around 2000 to do Cruelty Without Beauty, we hadn't um, sort of recorded or done anything together for 17 years. And the same, and the same with the um, the latest album, Happy Just Not Included. So there, there was no intention of that. It's just that we were never. Dave never really liked performing live. Um, he never really enjoyed it, and we, we, we just never toured very much. Yes. So it's nice that we finally come to a, a, comes to a soft sell show now in, in Dublin, which will be great. So, so there's a, there's a pent up appetite, Mark. <laughs> well, well, I really hope so. I think it's good to do some of these songs to, you know, and and um, to, to an audience who, who maybe haven't seen some of them perform live before. So, so I'm I'm quite excited about it. I, I hear your birds in the background. What have you got? Yeah, I've got two parrots and I've got a jackdaw. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a jackdaw who, who's brooding at the moment because it's the um, laying egg season. She's laid two eggs and she's trying to lay another one, but they're not going to be fertilised because she hasn't met a, um, a man jackdaw. So basically, she's she's, um, uh, she, she's trying to lay something that's not really happening. And right. and so I think I'm going to have to put a stop to it soon because she's spending all of the all of the time in her box and never coming out. So. I- is, is her name Dawkins? Is that it? Her name is, it, it, her name is Dawkins. We thought it was a male at first. So right. we called her Dawkins after Jack Dawkins, the, the character in, in Oliver Twist. Because um, <laughs> she was always stealing things and, you know, as, as a little thief, really. So, um, But then it just stuck Dawkins when one day she, she laid an egg. So it's kind <laughs> of like <laughs> Dawkins, really. <laughs> right. Uh, so bring yeah. us back to the heady days then of the early 80s and you were just out of art college. So what sort of person were you? Well, arty, I suppose. <laughs> I, think, I, I, think, I, mean, I mean, I've been at art college for five years and I think Dave, Dave had too. So we were really an, an, an art college band and we formed around the time of um, punk. We were a post-punk, electronic, 
electronic band. And that's how we, we kind of started. At, 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 at college, I was doing um, sort of experimental theatre and performance art, and that kind of developed it in, into, into the first early soft cell performances, really, that were really done at the art college. They were, we, we very much came from that background. So when we suddenly find ourselves in the, in the commercial music business and then the pop um, yeah. business, it was a strange place for us to be at the time because we'd always... In, in business that we'd have maybe this cult following and I don't know very sort of small alternative following. yes alternative yeah, yeah. alternative following yeah. and indie sort of following and then we found ourselves right at the top of the pop charts you know <laughs> and we, it was a weird place for us to be but it was kind of a nice place to be but at the same time it was I think I think both of us were kind of I really kind of fought against it a bit at the time and we couldn't we didn't, we didn't enjoy as much as, as we should have yeah. because we were kind of be, bewildered by it all you know I think in, in a way and we were very difficult I think to the record company at that time but I mean, I mean you've just played Torch I think I think Torch is, is, is probably my favourite soft sell single actually I think and Torch it, 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 um, it encapsulates all, all that, that soft sell were and are I think it has it, it's just a great um, it's just, I think it's, it's, it's the best soft yeah. sell single other people will disagree with me but I think that I think Dave feels the same way as well oh, that, that was a bit we landed on our feet there didn't we Mark uh, but, yeah. but it's, it's, it's the lyrics amazing lyrics great storytelling and then there's always a brilliant hook as well, which is, you know, that's a perfect pop song then, isn't it? I think soft style songs, we, we like to have a bit of bittersweet. You know, they've got a pop, they've got a pop sound to them. Yeah. And they're very kind of, um, a very kind of up pop sound, but we like to have a, a, a bit of twist in the tail as well. So, so it sounds, there's a, there's a bit of like a little bit of darkness in there as well. And I, I think it's certainly with a song like Say Hello, Wave Goodbye, which, which tells a story. And Say Hello, Wave Goodbye really fits as, as part of non-stop erotic cabaret. It, it really is, is, is the whole theme of a, of a story that runs through a, a non-stop erotic cabaret. It's really like a, a theatre piece. And I think when we performed it over recent years, we've done it as a, as a whole album with visuals and everything. It's, it, it really is, it is like a, 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 a kind of a, a showpiece. Mm. Like a, it, it tells a narrative through it, ending with Say Hello, Wave Goodbye, which tells this this story. So and I think that we we really like to write songs that, that tell the, these stories and have this cinematic theatrical edge. Mark Almond on The Ray Darcy Show. And on the live line, been there, done that and got the T-shirt. Well, maybe not for Paula at this weekend's VHI Women's Mini Marathon. Apparently there are going to be 40,000. I know there's a Cork Marathon on, but the Women's Mini Marathon in Dublin is on this Sunday, beginning at 12.30, an event that's been going on for decades. A fun-filled, brilliant atmosphere, not just in the race, but in the city uh, on the day. Um, up, Up to... Uh, 30,000 women will take part. Uh, Pauline Johnson. Pauline, good afternoon. Hi, Joe. How are you? How long have you been doing the women's mini marathon? Over 30 years. I'll go back to far, the very, like, one of the very first ones when we used to run up the total different direction down by James's Hospital. And on, over the years, I'd say we've done about 30 to 35 years of the, the wow. women's mini marathon because it's always been a great day out. Yeah. And does it get harder or easier, Pauline? Um, it's, it's, you know, it's because of the fun element of yeah. it. It doesn't, you know, it does be fine generally. It does be great. Like, you wouldn't go back for more if you weren't enjoying it. As That's true. That's true. 35 years says, says it all. Who do you run it with? I run it with my sisters. OK. The three of you? The three of us. But there's usually four of us that run. Okay. Just one of them can't run this year. But OK. 
And do you run it for it's the same cause every year or do you run it just for your own fun? Mainly we run it for our own fun. Once or twice over the years we've done it for the Irish Kidney Association. Well, brilliant charity, yeah. Or for the homeless. But yeah, mainly right. we just run it for fun. Okay, now, um, what what's happened this year? Because I've, I've been looking at their website and I can't find what you say, but you have discovered something. Go ahead, Pauline. Yes, my two sisters received their numbers, and I received my number indeed a few weeks ago in the post. Yeah. You went on, you paid your entry fee, it's 35 euro, whatever it was, okay. and they said, theirs was 38 euro, and I said, oh yeah, but you got your t-shirt posted out. Now this was always an option yeah. in the past. You want to collect your t-shirt on the day, if you want to post it out, you pay an extra okay. four or five euro, or whatever it was. And the t-shirt says, I ran them, women's mini marathon. The t-shirt says the mini marathon, uh, it usually says the year on it. The year, it. of course. Like last year, even though it was two years, they had to give out the 40th anniversary okay. one. Um, but we're, not, we're used to getting them at the end of the run. They hand them out with the goodie bags. Yeah, and right. generally, the amount of women that whip off their T-shirts and put on the fresh T-shirts, right. and you see us all in the pub with the medals and the T-shirts yeah. on, and it's like, it's a, look, Fine. I've done this today again, another year done, and the photographs and the whole lot. Done that war and have the T-shirts. Exactly. Yeah. So I ran this morning anyway, and to the girl, listen, I said, I didn't get my T-shirt. Maybe <laughs> I should have ticked the box, I don't know, but I didn't okay. get the T-shirt. Um, will I get it on the day? Okay. And she said, no, you won't get a T-shirt. And I said, why not? And she said, because we're only giving them out now for the first 10,000 ah. finishers. And I said, or the first 10,000 entrants. And I said, I'm pretty sure I was one of the first 10,000 entrants because I enter it very early. Plus, I also know for a fact that I entered it before my sister. Okay. So I said, why did I not get a T-shirt? Yeah. And she said, oh, you didn't tick the box to say you wanted it. We had a thing on the website saying sustainability. And I said, I thought it was just the usual that's been going on for 30 years. If you want a T-shirt posted, that I didn't want that option. I wanted to collect it at the finish line. And the reason I wanted to collect at the finish line is because the last two years, if they look back on the weather, it was lashing, teeming rain. Okay. And by the time you walk down to Marion Square to pick up your bag, you're soaked anyway from doing the run. So it's nice to have a dry T-shirt to put it on for the photographs when you're finished. Take off the wet one and wring it out and put on the dry one. But pardon, is this a change this year? Did everyone oh, always get a T-shirt? Always get a T-shirt okay. at the end. It's because I'm looking, I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking at their the VHI website for, yeah. the, and they've been a great supporter of it for for years. And then I think Flora did it before, and uh, someone else. But um, they say adult option one, adult entry, postage of race number, and T-shirt. Yeah. But it doesn't say the T-shirt is limited to basically one quarter of the entrance. Well, exactly. That was my argument this morning. And I said to her, it wasn't advertised anywhere, not on radio, not on TV, not anywhere. Oh, yeah, she said, it was on our website when you signed up. And I said, well, I didn't look for my T-shirt when I signed up. You normally just sign up, you pay your money. Yeah, you pay your 35. I always take no, I don't want a T-shirt posted. Yeah. I said, so I don't think I've done that wrong. I said, and even if I did, I'm still looking for my T-shirt. I've paid the money. Three euro less than... Yeah. The people paid for their postage. But you paid your well, 35 euro. And Paula was told sustainability was the reason she wasn't getting the T-shirt. But are they saying there was a T-shirt yellow mountain left they, up they in They had Lisa T-shirts Street. left over, yeah. is what they're saying. So she said it's for sustainability. And I said, well, I don't believe it's for sustainability. I believe if someone on a spreadsheet said we can save money here, just give the first 10,000 entrance T-shirts. 
which is so unfair. There's women that hobble around that. Like, I run it, and I run it, like, I should get back. As I said, I was one of the first um, 10,000 to sign mm-hmm. up. So, like, you should get one. But so, so should the woman who hobbles it in three hours on her sore leg and her ulcerated leg proving a point to herself and the world. She's entitled to her T-shirt, too. Um, but I thought clothes, especially, were very were very uh, recyclable. They could they could be. Well, it's not even about recyclable, Joe. Every T-shirt I can show you, my T-shirts for the the mini okay. marathon. I have a lot of them because they are valuable. Because the reason, because they are, because they are unique. Being a runner, you need a lot of running T-shirts, and as well as that, you're going to wear them twice to three times a week when you're doing your training. And you see, the initial reaction you'll get is. I'll give you my T-shirt. But it's no. not, that's not the answer, is it? No, it's not the answer. The answer is, I want my T-shirt, what I've always got. I should have, what I signed up for is what I want, Joe. Mm. What I paid for is what I want. That's Paula on the Live Line with Joe Duffy. And on today with Claire Byrne, Health Minister Stephen Donnelly. Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly, good morning. Claire, thank you for having me in. Thank you for coming into the studio. Now, uh, Cabinet yesterday signed off on this ban on the sale of vapes or e-cigarettes to under-18s. How are you going to enforce that? This is essentially, this is a child protection measure. So what we're doing is we will be banning the sale of vapes to anyone uh, under the age of 18. And there's other things we're bringing in with it. So tobacco and vapes will be banned through self-service vending machines or mobile units, the type of things you see at uh, events or you might see at festivals. They'll be they'll be banned. Critically, we're banning advertising on vapes as it pertains to children. So around schools, uh, public transport, um, uh, sports events that are primarily or events that are primarily for for, for children uh, in cinemas mm-hmm. and so forth. So it, it'll be policed in the same way that alcohol and tobacco and everything else is policed. The the enforcement officers have significant powers. They can they can uh, issue a fine on the spot for up to two thousand euro. And if there's an issue with that, they can proceed to court. And then there's very significant uh, penalties that the courts can... So are are they going to be doing inspections themselves or are they relying on members of the public to report breaches to them? They'll do inspections. And and indeed, they already do because vapes are are a a regulated product. And we've just seen some quite disturbing information from the the UK in terms of unregulated vapes, which have all sorts of toxic substances yep. in them, which are being vaporised and people are inhaling. So the HSC already inspects products and, and does visits. And what this will do now is give the enforcement officers significant additional powers to to make sure that the shops are compliant with this legislation. You, you'll know, though, when this was announced yesterday, the Irish Heart Foundation said it just doesn't go far enough and they want a complete ban on flavours and disposable vapes because they argue that we're going to see a generation lost again to smoking. Why didn't you do that? Because menthol cigarettes have been banned for a long time now. So the opportunity was there to lead out on this and ban, you know, the Tutti Fruities and the bubblegum flavours and so on, pear drops. I mean, who are they aimed at? Exactly. There, this, this is all aimed at children. I believe the combination of the very bright and colourful labelling, some of it anyway, and some of these flavours like bubblegum flavour, obviously that is aimed at children. But you didn't ban those. We are. So what we're doing is we have legislation domestically to to ban for uh, children, those under 18 and the various measures I just went through. What I'm doing now is working at an EU level to bring in not just an Irish ban, but an EU-wide restriction in terms of labelling and flavours. The EU 
is revising its tobacco directive to be published next year. And so what I'm going to be doing is working with them to bring it in. The advice I have from the department, which I, which I think is correct, is it's more effective to do this right across the EU, have it in for next year. If the EU looks like it isn't going to go there, there will, as there always has been, intensive lobbying from the tobacco companies. And remember, it's the tobacco companies in a lot of cases that own these vaping products. Uh, we w- we will move to legislation. So did here. you look at banning those flavours and you found that it wasn't possible to do it without the EU? It's not so much that it is impossible to do it without the EU. It's that the advice I have is that doing it on an EU level is more effective in terms of enforcement and making sure that just nowhere within the EU... Uh, would there be, uh, you know, the, the, the but the that didn't apply to, to to banning for under 18s. Uh, no, exactly. So the directive uh, from the EU next year won't be that. So the legislation we're bringing in covers the areas we want to cover now, and then we're going to move at an EU level on flavours and and labelling. And as I said, we don't know where that EU directive is going to is going to land. Ireland is going to play a very strong role in it. We have good form on tobacco. We're recognised internationally on the smoking ban. Well, that's the point, isn't it? Like, we did break new ground on the smoking ban and we could have done that when it comes to those flavours, but we didn't take that opportunity. No, I wouldn't agree with that. We we broke new ground on the smoking ban. We actually broke new ground last week as well on alcohol labelling. Uh, I was in uh, at the World Health Assembly in Geneva and Ireland is the first country in the world now to bring in this comprehensive labelling on, on Uh, on alcohol products, including direct links to cancer. All I'm saying is the advice from the department, which I agree with, is doing this at an, take the opportunity to do it right across the EU. And if it looks like the EU isn't going where we want to go, we'll just go there ourselves. You mentioned alcohol and we had uh, Donal O'Shea in here during the week and he was talking about how much we're consuming, but he highlighted a concern and we've heard this from others too about advertising companies plastering their zero alcohol branding uh, around sporting events. You'll You'll have seen this at all times of the day. That gets their brand out there. It avoids the bans, Donal O'Shea says. Do you agree with that? Do you think that measures need to be taken to stop that happening? I do. And I've asked the department for exactly what legal routes are available under the existing legislation. And if it isn't possible under the existing legislation and regulations, uh, I'm certainly very open to bringing in amending legislation. I think it's quite cynical. You know, I was at I was at the, the Leinster match uh, just a few weeks ago and the shops you walked into had zero zero everywhere. It was on the pitch you know, and the whole point of the alcohol advertising bans was to decouple that link, particularly for kids. There's a lot of kids at those matches or watching those matches. My own kids were at home watching that watching that match. I don't want my kids and parents do not want their children watching these brilliant sports events uh, with alcohol advertising on the pitch. I believe, rightly or wrongly, I believe that it is a it is a way of it is a way of advertising that may be still compliant with the legislation, but is certainly not in the spirit, in, in my opinion, of the so legislation. So they're surreptitiously advertising their full alcohol brands. Well, certainly what I can say is I, I don't think what's happening uh, is acceptable and I'm taking advice on, on what we do about it. Well, that's just an excerpt of that interview with Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly. Then later, Claire spoke to young mum, Gabrielle McGovern, about access to the cancer drug 
Trove Delvey. Now, in recent days, we've been hearing about patients with advanced cancer losing out on access to new treatments unless those treatments are covered by their health insurer. One of the drugs in question, Trodelvi, is also not available to those receiving cancer treatment through the public system, but funding is currently being examined by the HSE. Well, my next guest, Gabrielle McGovern, has a terminal cancer diagnosis, and she's among those waiting to hear about whether that drug will be available to to people without health insurance and Gabrielle joins me on the line now. Good morning, Gabrielle. Good morning, Claire. How are you going? Uh, good. Thanks for joining us this morning to talk about this. Now, the Minister was here earlier on, the Minister for Health. Mm-hmm. He didn't have an update for us while we were on air, but he has been back in touch to say that Trodelvi has gone through the health technology assessment stage. And he mm-hmm. says, crucially, that the National Centre for Pharmacoeconomics has recommended this drug. Mm-hmm. So now where we're at yeah. is the HSE is in negotiation with the company yeah. on pricing. And the Minister says he hopes this is good news. Yeah. But of course, it's subject to a pricing agreement being reached. Yeah. So what's your reaction yeah. to hearing that today? Well, of course, I mean, the NCPE have finished, made that recommendation in March. So, I mean, I'm really well versed on, on what the NCPE um, uh, process is. Um, but the problem is now that it's actually finished with the NCPE, it's gone into like the void of the HSE and the process as to how it goes from not approved to approved is completely like opaque. There's no way of knowing what the process is. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've been trying to find out from his office and from various other uh, government agencies um, because at that point it's kind of disappeared. You don't know what's going on and I'm waiting to see if it's going to be approved so that I can basically live longer. <laughs> um you know, and I have no idea where it is in the process and you're just yeah. left in this horrible limbo. And, um, and look, can we just talk about the timeline here for you on this mm-hmm. drug and why it's so important mm-hmm. that you find out today whether you're going to get this or not? Yeah. Well, I mean, I was diagnosed with um, my primary cancer in February 2021 and then I got my kind of terminal diagnosis in September 21, so only six months later. Um, so basically, I've been battling uh, breast cancer since September 21 with various chemos. I've had about six or seven different types of chemo. Um, none of them have actually worked. They've kind of held it at bay for a month or two and then it started to regrow again. So um, the hospital, St. James's Hospital, managed to source um, a couple of um, cycles of Tredevely for me um, directly from the manufacturer um, of the drug. And it's shown to be really effective. Um, it's shrinking my tumours. It's given me a much better quality of life compared to the other chemos that I've been on. And it's just like made me be able to actually spend quality time with my children. Um, so if I don't keep access to it, if I don't get any more Tredevely, basically I'm back to where I was and that um, my my chemotherapy will be really not very effective, will make me kind of really sick during the day, during the week, um, and basically won't, uh, won't keep me alive for very long. And the, and the Trudelvi is, is allowing you to live as normal a life as you possibly can. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Yeah, like it's it's night and day compared to the previous um, therapies that I've had. Like I could be in bed for nearly a full week after having a, a previous type of chemotherapy. Um, this one, the next day, I'm kind of up and about. I can go bring the kids to the park, you know, just normal everyday life um, things. Whereas before that, it could be seven to ten days I'd be really sick, nauseous, 
in bed, not really able to do anything. Mm-hmm. You have two little um, boys, uh, Gabrielle, is that right? Yeah, yeah, I have two sons, Oscar and Scott. They're, um, Scott's three and Oscar's five. So, I mean, Scott was still a baby when I got my diagnosis, you know, he wasn't even one. Um, so, to them, it's kind of a normal everyday life, but um, it's still really hard to, to to look at them knowing that, you know, I'm I'm going to die. Like, and, uh, Definitely, it's the one drug that's keeping me. Sorry. No, listen, I, I'm amazed that you're able to talk about this because to have yeah. to do it in a public way is, um, it's devastating, really. Um, yeah, yeah. And you and have those really two hard. little boys to to think about. Mm-hmm. And I know that this whole thing, this whole campaign, the reason why you're talking to me, is because yeah. of them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and if I had some idea that the Tredevly was coming, like that, the process would be over in two weeks' time. I could say, well, that's okay, I can relax, that's fine, but if it's not going to be for another six months, like, if I don't get the drug in the meantime, um, my cancer will essentially kind of learn around it, and it won't be effective. So if I have a gap in in between having Tredevely, these few that the hospital has managed to get for me, and a big gap, then it won't work, basically, the next time around. So... I really need to make sure I have access to it continuously. So Claire asked Gabrielle about her experience of Trodelvi. How many doses have you had and, and how does it work and how is it spaced out and, and how have you managed to get the, the Trodelvi? Yeah. So my consultant pushed with the drugs company and I, I'm not sure exactly what, what she uh, did, but she managed to source three cycles for me. So basically it's a three-week cycle. So on day one and day eight of the three weeks, I have an infusion um, directly into my vein, so an IV infusion of the chemotherapy and then a break. Um, and then it all starts again. So it's three weeks. So I had nine weeks of Tredevely so far. So I have I had the three cycles and now I I don't know what's happening with the fourth cycle. I don't know if I'm going to get it. I don't know if the manufacturers are going to give it to me or if the HSE are going to provide it or the hospital buy it. I've been trying to crowdfund myself to get it. A friend of mine's doing the, the mini marathon this weekend and she's been crowdfunding. So, I mean, I've got, it's it's about 12, 13 grand per cycle. Um so, and can you do that if you had the money? Would you be allowed to go and and purchase it? Does... I mean, that's that's another uh, uncertainty in my life. I don't actually know. I'm presuming the drugs company would allow you to buy it. I mean, they're allowing VHI to buy it. You know, that's what those mm. those stories in, in in the times there came out. You know, so the VHI can buy it. So I don't see why I couldn't. Again, they won't talk to patients directly. The 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 manufacturers, my husband Jason tried to call them and they were like, oh, we can only speak to doctors, we can't speak to patients. So mm-hmm. we're kind of being stonewalls uh, every turn um, around so, this. So when are you due to start the next cycle? Well, I should be due on the 8th of June, but I don't know. If so I'll... just over a week? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, so, uh, Gabrielle, you, uh, yeah, you, you, yeah. you've no idea whether it's going to be there for you or not? No. No, no idea. So it's just adding to the, you know, the situation is obviously terrible <laughs> as it is. Um, and it's just adding more uncertainty and more stress and anxiety um, to to the whole thing. You know? So, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I haven't even, uh, the crowdfunding, the GoFundMe has like 6,000 euro raised and I need 12,000 per cycle if I even can buy it privately like that mm-hmm. so you know it's still 
it's 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 a lot of uncertainty in life and it's extremely stressful. And, and Gabrielle, before you got cancer, before you got your diagnosis, mm-hmm. you were a civil servant, so you yeah. know you know all about how the systems work and how tricky I it do. can be to get through the bureaucracy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Look, I, I mean, when I I worked in the Department of Justice and I had. Um, they kind of sponsored me to do legal training. So I actually like studied law. So I'm very aware of like due process and all the rest and, you know, fairness and equity and the, the general civil service ethos of uh, transparency and, and things like that. But like there's none of that being applied here in this case. And like w- when the drug goes from the NCPE process to into the the, the void of the HSE, like nobody can tell me who is actually making these decisions. It's like, who is the HSE who has the decision-making power? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, so, yeah, so I, I am acutely aware that there's lots of process and procedures that have to take place, and I appreciate that. Like, And when I when I emailed uh, the Minister's office back in November asking them about the drug, it was still going through the NCPE process, and I, he said, oh, I can't interfere with the process, and I kind of went, okay, that's fair. He can't interfere. You know, that's fine. But, but now we know that process is over. So <laughs> the negotiation yeah. is happening on the price. But what you want to know is how far away yeah. are we from a decision yeah. here? Because I have just exactly. over a week. Yeah. And has yeah, has, has exactly. have your um, healthcare providers told you what will happen if you don't get this dose in, in on the 8th of, of June? Well, I mean, they just kind of said that, yeah, the council will kind of it will have time to readjust itself and work around the drug so it won't be as effective if there's a big gap in treatment. So if it takes them six weeks to give it to me, basically my cancer will have learned in the meantime how to get around it and then the drug definitely won't be as effective as it is currently. Mm-hmm. Because at the minute it's like shrinking the tumours which hasn't happened in nearly two years of treatment. Um and as I said, it's improving my quality of life and stuff. So, I mean, if I don't get it, I'll uh, have a sh- much shorter life. You know, the doctors, they're very um, reluctant to say <laughs> that, you know, oh, you've only got X amount of time left to live. Because obviously nobody can tell the future. But um, they kind of say these things without saying these things, you know. So they're saying if you don't have it, your life will be significantly reduced. But, I mean... Um, it's already significantly you know I'm only 28 now so um, and uh, you were you were saying earlier that what what you what the drug has allowed you to do is spend time with Jason and Mm -hmm. and the two boys with um, Oscar and Scott and that time is quality time that's that's all you want isn't it exactly yeah like I I don't want anything (laughs) crazy I just want to be like live for a few extra months with my children and my husband you know they're so young the kids you know, Scott probably won't even remember me. You know, and when he's older, because he's so young. Um, but if I can stay alive a bit longer, he might have a few memories. You know, from when he was four, he go, "Oh, I remember when Nanny did this." But you know, if if I die tomorrow, he's not gonna really remember. And, and I'm really aware of that. And it's uh, it's really difficult to talk about. He will. He will. He will remember you. He will remember you. <laughs> does does Oscar does Oscar know what you're facing? I mean, I know he's only five, but I mean, I have a five yeah. year old myself, and she knows everything. So yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he does, and he does. I think he knows more than he lets on. You know, 
he knows when we have to go into hospital for like special medicine and it could sometimes make me feel a bit sick and um you know I've got um I've got a kind of a, a tumor that protrudes out my chest wall and he knows like not to touch there because that you know that's where mommy has her big ouchie and stuff you know yeah. so he's aware in a kind of a kid sense um, he's not aware of the terminal diagnosis, obviously, because there's no he doesn't need to know that until the time comes. Um, but yeah, he he and he's very sensitive. You know, when I'm going into hospital, he says, "Oh, mummy, if you miss me and the doctors, you know, send me a hug and things." You know, so yeah. like he's he's aware it's affecting him. I know it is affecting him, but uh, there's only so much we can we can do around that as well. You yeah. know what I mean? We are where we are. I can't change things. So I'm, mm. I'm trying to make sure that any kind of memories that we have are good ones of me being able to get out and about and not stuck in the bed. Gabrielle McGovern from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the morning, Oliver Callan was talking to American College football star Nana Osafo Mensa from Texas. He plays for the Fighting Irish Notre Dame and he was in town to talk about a special sold-out game in the Aviva Stadium. But first, a bit about Nana. Yes, sir. Yeah, I play um, defensive end for the Fighting Irish in Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. I've been playing there since uh, 2019, January, and hopefully this is going to be my last year upcoming season, so... This is your last year in college football. Yes, sir. Because mm-hmm. you're you're dreaming of the big time, which is NFL. Exactly. So hopefully after this year, I'll be able to have enough under my belt, enough under my resume so that I could go and start training for the combine and then eventually get drafted or signed to an NFL team. So um, is it, it's, it's the same sport, essentially. Is it just different codes? Basically, so I mean, you start as young as however you start playing football and then eventually you go into high school. You get recruited by different colleges if you have the opportunity to. And then once you end up committing to a college, you can play there from anywhere from at least three years. Or some people even end up playing about six years with COVID and all the rules, eligibility and all of that. So then once you've been eligible enough to play in college and you can basically try to apply, I guess is like the best word to say. And then you can go to the NFL to where you can submit your film to the draft, see if you can get invited to a combine or you can just compete in your combine at your school and still get picked up by a professional team. So, yeah, so that's the big time. So college football is, is amateur. You don't get paid. Yeah, we don't get paid. But fortunately now there's been new rules. They're called um, NIL to where that college athletes can basically make um, profit off their brand and their image of who they are themselves. But there's still a lot of, like, rules and regulations there to where it's not explicitly getting paid just to play football like professionals are. But there's ways that you can endorse certain brands, certain basically businesses that can sponsor you, can get some type of compensation for that. So they're keeping it amateur. But we should say college football is an absolute massive phenomenon, isn't it? Oh, it really is. Yeah, it's a big deal in America. It's, it's a big, big deal. And I mean, Irish people can't even get tickets for, for, these, <laughs> for these games that are happening in Ireland. Yeah. Uh, because, and this one is totally sold out, isn't it? Yeah, well, already sold out. They were already talking about it being like the biggest um, migration of Americans to Europe in a non-war time. So it's going to be a pretty cool thing happening in August for us. That's quite the statement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and Camille, how did you uh, get into it then? Can you g- explain a little bit about your, your background and how you get into college football? So, um, growing up, I mean, I started playing football when I was in second grade and it was a great opportunity for me. But I actually grew up being a more of a basketball fan. Uh-huh. But um, as I got bigger and stronger, more than I got taller, I realized football was going to be a better suit for me. And then around my junior, sophomore year of high school, I started getting recruited by colleges, first by Texas A&M, down in College Station to other schools like UCLA and Los Angeles and USC out there on the West Coast and everything like that. 
So then once you start getting recruited, schools will offer you a scholarship opportunity to come play for them and go to school there. So they gave me an opportunity. Notre Dame gave me an opportunity to go to school there, and I decided to commit to them. And then tell me a little bit history. Yeah, tell me a little bit about getting recruited to play. So the recruiting process is very interesting because it's basically coaches reaching out to you and coaches coming down to your high school to see you, see how you play, see your grades, learn more about your personality, and basically if you fit their criteria, like criteria of who they want to recruit for their team, then they can offer you a scholarship to come play for them. And the competition is fierce for that. Oh, very fierce, very. Do you remember the day you're you're recruited? You get the word. Um, I do remember my first offer. It was from Texas A and M, and it was a crazy experience because the head coach A and M actually FaceTimed um, um my coach at in high school, and he pulled me out of lunch to talk to me. He offered me the scholarship, and at first I couldn't really comprehend what he was really meaning. But basically, he was just saying like, "We want you to come play for us. We're offering you free education." to yeah. come just be a part of our team and just be able to excel in your talents and hopefully get to NFL. So then after that, like, different offers started coming in from different schools all around the country, and it was just a great, like, opportunity for me. Definitely very stressful because I didn't really have a dream school growing up, so I had mm-hmm. to go on a lot of visits to find out what school would really fit me personally, what school like my family liked best, but Notre Dame ended up being the greatest opportunity for me. So you had your pick of the colleges. That must have been that. How did you... Because Notre Dame is obviously... It's got its international reputation. It's mm-hmm. an amazing university, isn't it? Yeah, Notre Dame has a great reputation for who they are. And personally, for me, I grew up Catholic and I went to a Catholic high school. So Notre Dame being a Catholic university for me and then just the way they valued their education just as high as they valued their football team was a really big deal for me and my family. So I just found it the, be- like the best of both worlds when I wanted to commit... Is it difficult to to mix the education? Because you have to study there, don't you? It's oh, not yeah. Just, you're not just playing football. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's it gets difficult at times because we're in classes as much as we're on the field or in the media room. So being able to learn how to balance that, it comes with time. You know, as older the older you get, you learn how to basically manage your time as you get older. And just you learn through people, you learn through coaches. Like, they really want to help you in any way possible. And they're not going to let you struggle and let you fail. As long as you reach out to support that's out there for you, then you'll be fine. And Nana spoke about his studies in Notre Dame. So I finished my undergraduate degree last year, actually, because since I enrolled, I enrolled a semester early into Notre Dame. So I was able to finish my undergrad in political science, and then I minored in sociology and economics. And then this um, past year, I was able to finish my master's degree in business management. Very light. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's kind of serious stuff. And I think we can we can get a sense of you that you're not someone who suffers hesitation on deciding what, oh, you what to do. Never that, no. <laughs> Very decisive, young fella. Yes, sir. And uh, you said you were basketball, because what height are you? I know I'm about 6'4". See, <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, sometimes it's kind of rude asking people, but when it's sports, yeah. for some reason, it's fine. And again, zero <laughs> hesitation. You're 6'4", and it says you, you filled out. Uh, do you pick a position then in football? Or are you kind of, you're recruited for that position and that's where you stay? Well, depending on when you start playing, you kind of can get a sense of where you want to play, but depending on like your body size, how tall you are, how much you weigh, how fast you move, how agile you are. But then as you get older, of course, like your body is going to be what your body ends up being. So for me personally, I was always like a defensive person. So I played a little bit of linebacker when I was a little smaller, but as I was able to put more weight on and get stronger, I was able to find out that I had more comfortability playing defensive line. So instead of just having to be kind of behind uh, a little bit farther back from the ball, I can be right up against the O-linemen, the big guys, and just be able to compete with them and just bang heads with them the whole time. <laughs> just bang heads. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you must have watched a bit of rugby, I presume, since you've arrived in an Irish rugby sh- uh, jersey this morning. I have. I have. <laughs> okay. I actually have a roommate that was a big rugby fan. He actually is from, his family's from uh, Tonga in the Pacific Islands, so he's always grew up playing um, yeah. um, rugby. His name is Junior Tui Alamaka, one of my favorite guys ever. And this jersey actually got it last time we came here when I was able to um, 
visit Everset to Sutherland. They just wanted us to get some pictures in the jerseys and all of that. And I've never had a rugby jersey before. And I just this is the law firm where you're doing your work experience. And I want to come to that actually as well. Um, but um, the, the rugby. So what? The, sometimes the rugby lads will slag. You know, will make fun of Amer- American football because you're yeah. padded up and you're helmeted. Uh, whereas you know they're they're kind of going in flesh to flesh. Yeah, rugby's intense. I will say, like, I, I don't know if I have 100% of the courage to play rugby without the pads and all of that, but watching it and learning about it, I have learned that it's actually, I would say the players in rugby are technically smarter than football players because something about, of course, not having pads on, you're going to want to be able to learn how to tackle properly and protect yourself. Whereas in football, like, I love my guys. I love hitting, and I know my teammates love hitting too, but when you put the pads on, you kind of, Forget about the form sometimes. You just want to figure out any way to get the guy down to the ground. Whereas in rugby, like, the form tackling seems pretty consistent versus football. It's just any way you can get him on the ground and get him down. It's funny that you said, because you think it's more technical. I know there's a lot of technical stuff in rugby, but essentially the whole team just have to kind of push the other lads yeah. in the other direction. Whereas in American football, you're kind of all working together. In, exactly, yeah. And you have to really do your job properly, don't you, for the whole yeah, team to work. Yeah, football is a big, basically do-your-job type of sport because if you mess up on one thing, it can affect the whole team. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, what, what, you're the, sorry, the last time you came to Ireland, you mm-hmm. did, it was launching this this game, wasn't it? Yeah, we were basically um, just going, we were kind of just touring different places and then basically kind of prom- promoting the game we had upcoming in this August. So we were able to go around the place. We went to Croke Park. We went to the Viva Stadium itself to just see where we were playing. And we were able to meet some of the people that were basically putting the game on for us, like the whole, um, the classic um Classic football, something like that. I can't remember the exact name of it, but basically the people putting on the game. We were able to meet yeah. those sponsors and those people running it and everything. The Erlingus College Football Classic. Exactly, yeah, that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's the official term. And you went into Croke Park, so you saw the, our, our national sport, Gaelic, yeah. Gaelic Games, with, yeah. the, with the football. And, uh, it, you know, you don't need to know the ins and outs of it. Basically, it's a century of sexual frustration meets, you know, kind of just run at everyone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very uh, Your political science degree really coming out of you for making no comment on that. Very basic. <laughs> um, so uh, you're with Evershed Southern. So you're, you're doing, you're here for work experience. So you did a tour the last time, saw mm-hmm. bits of Ireland and a whistle stop tour. Now you're doing work experience. Is that what you're doing? Explain yeah, to it's me an internship over there Ever, um, Evershed to Sutherland. Are you actually doing um, legal work experience or are they people just gawking at you and wanting to sign things? No, they have me working with them, like the tax department. So it's been pretty cool to see how it works like that. And I was even able to meet some people in like litigation because I have some interest in law. So just basically this whole week has been a big opportunity for me because I've never personally had any type of work experience. So just basically being able to see how people are in the workforce, especially like in a law firm itself, because... The law, the law route is kind of something I would like to do eventually in my life, go to law school and be a lawyer back home in America. So being able to kind of see how it works outside of America has just been a cool insight for me. Nana Osafa Mensa talking to Oliver Callan in the morning. And on the live line in the afternoon, Larry called Joe to remember the short life of soldier Billy Keegan. Please uh, acquaint our listeners and indeed remind some of them, but acquaint most of them with uh, the, the, the short life and the heroism of private Billy Keegan. Well, Joe, Billy Keegan was a young soldier for Ballyhonas in County Mayo. Okay. And he'd always aspired to join the army. Right. And he eventually joined in 1997, the 1st Infantry Battalion in Galway. Yep. And he went to Lebanon in on the 82nd Battalion, and that's where I met him first. Okay. Now, I'd known, I'd known Billy, and I'd known his family. So I, was, I knew Mary, his sister, and she told me he was joining the army and to look out for him. 
Okay. So when Billy arrived to Lebanon, I gave him his orientation of Lebanon because I was with the Eddie First about to rotate home. So roll on a few years and 1999 I spent a full year in Lebanon and the second part of the year Billy came out and I served with Billy on the 85th Battalion and we were only six weeks into the trip when Billy was tragically killed yeah. on the 31st of May 1999 today is actually his 24th anniversary yeah. Yeah. and God rest. Billy Billy was an outstanding soldier okay. and the night before he rang me. I was off post. I was due to travel to Unifil headquarters as convoy commander. And he told me that he'd been promoted in the field to act in corporal unpaid. Okay. And he wanted to know what I have stripes from. I said, of course I have. I'll bring them. I'll give them to you when I get back up. The stripes? The follow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's two stripes. He was Brilliant. getting acting corporal. Brilliant. And that's a junior leader in the Defence Forces. Now, it was unpaid, but it would have brought him on in his career. Yeah. Billy Keegan. And everyone will tell you was going places. Okay. He was he, he was going up the ranks. So on the morning of the thirty first of uh, May yeah. nineteen ninety nine, around five o'clock in the morning, I was about a kilometer away, and I could hear the shooting in the distance. It woke me up, and I didn't know what was going on. Okay. And we just turned on the radios that we had to see what was coming over the net to see what was happening, and there was a firefight going on in Rashid Village mm-hmm. and you went post 642 which Billy was on was coming under direct fire and then two mortars were fired one impacted outside the post the second mortar impacted inside the post fatally killing Billy mm. but the but the background to all this which I didn't know at mm. the time because when I found out it was Billy that was killed, I just heard it coming over the radio net, bunker number such and such is down fatally, and mm-hmm. other bunker numbers came in as injured. So I knew it was Billy when I seen the bunker number, because I had a list of the bunker numbers in front of me to see who, who had been hit. The background to it is that morning, when the post came under fire, Billy was not on duty. Okay. He woke up, went up to the post where platoon officer and platoon sergeant and the NCO or the, the corporal on duty were reporting back what was going on and Billy asked what can I do yeah. and the post commander said get them into Groundhog which is our code for into the bunkers Yeah. so Billy got up and got 14 guys out of their beds and into the bunkers and as he was going in with the last two the fatal round impacted oh he was the last man travelling in and they killed him instantly. He could have been in the bunker first. But no, he went above and beyond, put his own life on the line and cared for his comrades to get them to safety. And he got, never got everyone up in the, the early hours of the morning and said everyone to take cover, get into the bunker quickly. Yeah, the, the, he, the two mortars landed at four minutes past five. He got them in, into safety. He saved the lives of 14 guys that morning. And as you say, he didn't have a commanding role that morning. He could have said, follow me into the bunker. But no, he said, quick, yeah. lads, get in and pushing people in. And He made sure they were all in. Barred the tree. One was fatally injured, or, or he was fatally injured. Another one of the guys, I don't want to mention names, yeah, was okay. uh, seriously injured. Yeah. And a third one, who did not know he was injured, 
and was administering first aid to both Billy and the other, the fatally in, or the seriously injured guy. He administered first aid afterwards, disregarding his own wounds, mm-hmm. until the post commander and platoon sergeant came down, and and the platoon driver took over and helped all three, all while under fire. They were still yeah. under fire while all this was going on. Incredible. And Larry has started a campaign to have Billy's actions recognised. What we're trying to do, we're, we're, we're over phase one. We we uh, we met with Mayo County Council, Councillor Seamus Weir, the guy here looked, got us into a meeting in Castlebar three weeks ago where we got a memorial approved and over the line which is going to be unveiled next year on the 25th anniversary and a bridge named after Billy. That was phase one. Okay. The second part of our campaign is to get them recognised officially by the government. Mm. We, I was, I was a, a signatory on a, a citation for Billy in 2018 to have him awarded the mid, mid, middle of gallantry. Okay. And it didn't go through. It was, it was knocked down under the Defence Force Regulation A9, uh, the new series which was uh, came into operation in December 2001. And part three, section one states there's a time frame that it has to be in within two years of the act of uh, bravery. Now, Joe, we came back from Lebanon that time yeah. in total shock. No one knew what was going on. Others were expecting others to put in. Course, At the yeah. end of the day, it should, have, it should have fallen into the lap of the battalion commander, but that never happened. So we watched with great interest what was going on with Jadaville. You know, because that was another historical yeah, incident, yeah, yeah, and they were getting knocked back. And we decided to put pen to paper for Billy in 2018, and it was turned down, as was Jadaville's. We are the worst country in the world recognising the honours of our own. I spoke with a senior US military officer and told him this story. Yeah. And he asked me, was there any US service personnel serving in the area at the time? There wasn't. And I said, why did you ask that? Because I would have got him a medal. I would have had him honoured by the US oh, military yes. if he was serving in an area that US military were serving in. And Jerry O'Boyle was Billy Keegan's best friend growing up. Uh, look at uh, Billy, uh, as it was. Um, we started school the same day together, we're neighbours. Um, look at, as everyone that knew Billy in Ballyhonish National School and Ballyhonish Secondary School, everyone knew that Billy's goal was to join the army because. Oh, Billy, Billy was he, uh, you know, as as what youngsters would do, like, um, you know, playing or whatever it was. Yeah. Like a new Billy was five years of age. Billy was always, um, you know, had to play the role with army with Billy, and uh, and the army was Billy's goal. And you know, he never really had much interest in school as such. Okay. You know, everyone, yeah. you know, I, I knew armies where Billy was going to go. And in fairness, you know, he, he finished secondary school in Ballyhonest. Yeah. And, you know, he went to work in the local factory. And within a couple of months, Billy applied for the army. And lo and behold, Billy got the army, you know. And he and he, and he, and he was over the moon. And he, uh, you know, and everyone brilliant, that knew Billy was brilliant. delighted for him. You know, he, he, he got his goal. You know what I mean? We... We all I went off on different ego trips, and you know, but Billy's ego was to um, to be in the army, and he and he and he did get it, and he, and he did succeed, and you know, he done his one the first trip out in the Lebanon, and you know, he was pretty excited about it, and um, he but went he was back very the second one he, I was just just remind people how young he was, Jerry, when he signed up. He 
he was uh, he was about, about nineteen years of age there when he signed up. You know, he was only a young soldier. He was only out of school. You know. And what age was he when he was killed? Then 24, 25? He was killed, uh, oh. 21. He was twenty one. Twenty one. Just going on twenty two that day. He, he was killed. Unfortunately, uh, twenty four years today. Uh, he was. Um, he was killed and he would have been uh, 22 that following July. So he that's was incredible. 21 hitting 22, you know. Well, that's incredible like, courage, you know, such I, a young man. You know, we, we, we can, we, we all remember the dark cloud that came over the small little town of Ballyhonest when Billy was killed, you know, the world came out that morning, you know. And in fairness, you know, the town, the county came to a standstill on the 5th of June when he got his full state funeral, you know. And, you know, uh, you know, there was a sign of proudness. You know, you know, he 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 died for a country, but you know, he did get the full military honours, and you know, it, 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 mm-hmm. the town did come to a standstill. And what I'm like, oh, I'm, this was what I'm on here today, George. You know, as Larry, and I'm kind of going back to what I'm saying. Billy was never recognised. He was never recognised for his bravery. There could have been 14 fatalities that morning. You know, but Billy put his neck on the line, and that's the type of lad. You know, he was very kind. He was good-hearted. He always put everybody first. Jerry O'Boyle remembering his friend Billy Keegan on the live line with Joe Duffy. And in the morning, demystifying the game of chess. Now, in some great chess news, yes, I promised some chess news at the top of the programme this morning. Next year, the University of Limerick is hosting the European School Chess Championships this time next year. So another kind of specialist sport with a global following that um, rarely happens in Ireland. This is the very first international chess tournament in Ireland. How did it happen? Well, Desmond Beattie is on the phone. Good morning to you, Desmond Beattie. Good morning, Oliver, and good morning to all your listeners, especially oh. those for whom chess is something of a mystery. We yes. hope to do a bit of demystifying today. Very good. I'm delighted you are, because I'm one of those people who... It's, it's a bit of a mystery, except for all the amazing shows and stuff. Uh, but your, your, your bona fides are you're the chair of the Irish Chess Union, isn't that correct? That's correct. The national governing body of the sport of chess in Ireland, uh, patron president Michael D. Higgins, were affiliated to the European Chess Union and to the world governing body of chess, FIDE. So rather, it's rather similar structure to football, you know, with FIFA and, and UEFA, that kind of structure. Oh, very good. That makes sense. Now, the, the, well, explain to us, the, the, the mystified among us, the significance of this announcement for, for chess in Ireland. Well, the just like uh, just like FIFA and UEFA, the, who have their different soccer, uh, you know, championships of various stages and ages across mm-hmm. the piece, um, we have uh, the FIDE have World Championships and the European Chess Union have European Championships, and Ireland has never hosted any of those. Wow. And so this is a historic first uh, because uh, we were last uh, uh, we went over to to the European Congress and put in our bid. Uh, we, we we were up against four others, which were all five star resorts in various corners of Eastern Europe, and uh, the University of Limerick, the Parkland campus. Um, came out ahead. In fact, I think we won it on the first count wow. um, and we secured the bid for Ireland to, to host the European School Chess Championship in 2024, the opening ceremony of which will be exactly one year from today, 31st of May, 2024. Oh, very good. The opening ceremony. And yes. um, so a huge amount of work, Desmond. Well, it's been about eight years in the making. I think the first contacts we had with our venue partner, University of Limerick, was about seven or eight years ago. Um, in the meantime, we've done a, you know, we've hosted a number of other 
events which aren't European or World Championships. So, for example, uh, President Michael D. Higgins opened the Glorney Gilbert International, um, a, a junior international, one of the oldest junior team internationals in the world, we believe, which was founded by an Irishman, Cecil Parker Glorney, in 1947 and goes around four or six countries and, and it sort of cycles around. So we hosted that in, for example, 2015 with four countries and again in 2019 with six countries and just this year in March we hosted a, a different type of event again another team but we had eight teams from six countries uh, playing in Nava in March so that's the sort of build-up we've been having both in terms of building our experience and expertise in Irish chess for hosting such events but this is the first you know, the historic element of this is this is the first you know um, as I say um, European chess union uh, event Wow. That, 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 we've, that we've secured for Ireland. The European so, School Chess Championships. And explain to us right. what, what that event is going to look like and how, how big that's going to be down in the in Europe. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a nine-round event. Uh, mm-hmm. It'll be one, one chess game a day um, and we'll have somewhere, somewhere around hopefully three to 400 uh, young people ranging in age from five or six up to 16. And I can tell you, having been to uh, last year's edition of the event, looking at the under-seven, watching the under-seven section yeah. players play is just a joy to behold. It's really wonderful. Under um, all the chess. games would be taken. Under seven's chess must be something to behold, as you say. It's just great. It's <laughs> they all, you know, they're all they all go about their business with a, this wonderful mixture of seriousness and innocence, and, <laughs> uh, and, and and all the way up. So we have a whole range of standards. There are twelve titles to be played for uh, uh, open to open championships. There is no men, male, or men's chess. That's only open or or, or girls, women. So we'll have um, opens at under 7, 9, 11, 13, 15 and 17 and the same for the girls under 7 through to under 17. And we expect, as I say, about three to 400 participants plus another three or 400, um, you know, parents and supporters and coaches and the like, uh, you know, for a total of about uh, seven, 800 people. It's worth about uh, half a million in direct spend. We, we reckon it's about worth about a, a million to the local economy. Uh, and when you said it was open, did you say that they're not divided by gender? Are they in chess and schools level, or are they are? Never, ever. We don't. There is no. There is no men's chess. Uh-huh. It's either open, in which case anybody and everybody can play, mm-hmm. right? Uh, of, of all abilities, as in, if you ha- you know, there's a whole uh, area about partially sighted and around disabled. They they all play, and they can all play in open tournaments. Okay. And indeed, you know, Judith Polgar was one of the top ten chess players in the world there um, ten or twenty years ago. Uh, so it's open. Desmond Beatty with Oliver Callan in the morning. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself till next time. <laughs>